My name is Umer, and you're tuning into Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. This episode is going to feature an interview I did with the Vancouver-based writer, activist, and comedian, Charlie Demers. The interview was on the subject of Indigenous sovereignty, pipelines, and resource development. Charlie and I also got into chatting about a few other things during the discussion, including stand-up comedy, the place of Quebec in the Canadian Federation, and the upsides of Canadian multiculturalism. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And also remember that you can support the production of this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so do you want to get started or? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That sounds good. Let, let me introduce you to our audience, first of all. <clears throat> sure. And then you can tell me whether this is a sufficient uh, biography or not. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be sufficient. So Charlie Demers is a Vancouver-based writer, activist, comedian, as well as a former podcaster. He is the author of four books, the most recent of which is a novel called Property Values. And Charlie's 2017 comedy album Fatherland can be purchased from 604records.com. And I have a few other things here I could say, but welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Charlie. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for having me. And I don't know if this is the right time to tell you, but while I have you, there is a broken link on your website, uh, oh. charliedemares.com. So when you click on the link to purchase your comedy album, it, it just it gives you an error. So then I went on the 604 Records website and i found it there but well it's uh i mean the 604 it's like 604 records is the label built with essentially like the the two like the twin sources are the nickelback fortune and then the call me maybe fortune oh like really the, the yeah those are the two sort of streams and then whereas my um my website is on Squarespace. So I, I'm i not surprised to hear that their website is uh, running better uh, than mine. But you, I just, everybody just listens to it on, um, or, you know, everybody listens to it is like on... Uh, on Spotify? Uh, yeah, it's a, so it's all the streaming services. I mean, it's, it's a funny thing because the, <clears throat> the comedy album has been retrieved as an industrial model. Uh, in this like McLuhan-esque uh, like rebirth of an old technology owing to new technology, and it's so it's actually been kind of wonderful. Um, I I was up for the first um, uh, the first Juno for a comedy album uh, since 1980. I think it was 83 or 1984. Uh, I lost to my uh, very uh, close friend Ivan Decker. Um, but that's how many new comedy albums there are, but <clears throat> almost everything is for, um, for satellite radio and streaming services. Right. So the actual album sales are incredibly humbling. So my album was the number one comedy album in Canada for a week on iTunes. And I was like, 
that's got to mean something. And then uh, I think I literally I think that meant it sold 70 units oh. that week. But whereas like on on satellite radio, it get, it get, they, these things get played all the time. And so it's a it's actually it's a big um, it's a big source of income now for stand up comedians and occasioned. Uh, this is actually the only time my writing has ever appeared in Jacobin, but I wrote a piece about the um, basically like the industrial action against just for laughs when they tried to eliminate this like lucrative income stream for stand-up comics of these uh, independent radio plays, uh, uh, satellite radio plays. Right. That was, uh, what was it? Class struggle in the comedy club? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Class struggle in the comedy club because it is um, like, there's no uh, artistic form that lends itself more to like idiocy in the um, like in the classic like in the Marxist sort of conception of idiocy of like the sack of potatoes than com- than comedians. There's there's nothing about the form that lends itself to solidarity. The peasants have more solidarity among themselves than comedians do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, it's just like any expression of solidarity is like fitful. Like all the stories of like, there's the attempt to organize, I think it's the comedy store in Los Angeles in the seventies and like the strike slash boycott. And then there's a big kind of walkout of a bunch of comics in the eighties from the yuck yucks world. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not ex- totally clear on what the details are. I think Brent Butt talks about it in his uh, episode of Mark Marin's podcast, but uh, there are these like every now and again uh, uh, occasions of uh, solidarity, but otherwise it's like it's a pretty solo endeavor. Um, and so uh, it was this quite beautiful thing the way people came together uh, around um, their material interests. Right. No, that was a good piece. Yeah. I remember reading it. It's not. It wasn't oh, that long, from long that long ago, was it? No, it was last year. I think. Yeah, because I usually forget things if they're you know longer <laughs> yeah. than yeah. Um, and just so, so just to sort of explain to our audience how this conversation happened or is happening. Um, so I used to listen to your podcast, the Well Reds podcast, and that was what, yeah. also like two years ago, probably you were doing it two or three years ago. I, I feel like, um, that's about right. Yeah. That sounds, that adds up to me. Yeah. Because I, and I think the way I found it, I was getting into listening to podcasts and I was just kind of looking for Canadian content. And then I ended mm-hmm. up on the Ricochet website. And then I think through there, you know, they have like a podcast tab. That's where I found it. And I honestly, I was, I loved it. The It was a great podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And if people haven't had a chance, chance to listen to it, I really recommend the, the Well Reds podcast. And then I guess, what was it? Like a couple months ago on Patreon, I saw someone named Charles Demers signed up to become a patron of our podcast. And I was like, Charles Demers, how do I, like, I think I've heard of this person. And then it was a couple of weeks later, it just sort of clicked. I was like, oh, Charles Demers, that's Charlie Demers. Yeah, you're the, I mean, you're, quite literally the one person in the country maybe 
who would know me from the Well Reds podcast, like uh, the that that would be the thing of like, oh yeah, from that socialist books podcast, right? That that he did for uh, for ten months or whatever. But uh, it was well, no, I would you know, likewise, I was very excited to see something happening like in the world of like left Canadian podcasting. Like it, it, it always feels like we get uh, left out of these uh, things. So you kind of piggyback on the various sort of American, um, uh, which does have a distorting effect, right? Like I, I, I'm way too pulled into the, um, uh, obviously like watching the Sanders campaign, watching the Corbyn campaign in the, in the UK, like these are like important things, but you know, if all politics are national at the end of the day, like there is a, um, there's just this weird way that we've all just kind of agreed to not engage with the country that we're all in. And then all of a sudden the, the place is like frozen by, you know, blockades across the railroads that essentially defined the country for its first uh, century and a half. And it's like, oh, wow cool and exciting stuff also happens here and then people rush to try and explain the contradictions and the conditions and the you know you'd see americans tweeting about it and it's like wow something you know something happened in canada that was cool enough to to make the american tweets yeah and there's you know there's pieces in the guardian and all that yeah uh of course i'm sure most of our listeners know about what's been happening in BC politics. And then now, of course, it's become part of the Canadian national scene. Uh, but yeah. this, this anti-pipeline struggle. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are two, I mean, there are two distinct but interwoven aspects to it, which is the, the indigenous sovereignty piece and the pipelines piece. And the, the indigenous sovereignty question, I think, is prior politically and historically and j- just in the sense that it's it's the sort of underlying uh, set of circumstances. I mean, who would have imagined that the province with both England and Columbus in its name would have a messed up relationship with indigenous people? But uh, British Columbia has a very different set of circumstances circumstances governing its relationship with indigenous nations than than the rest of the country in that whereas most of Canada is a country of broken treaties or asymmetrically imposed treaties British Columbia is a place of for the most part no treaties whatsoever and that coupled with the fact that it is uh, a place that is you know in it given the sort of um, history of settlement in North America relatively recently settled in a colonial context. I mean, like Vancouver as a city is is constituted in, in the year 1886, you know, compared to Quebec cities like 400 years old. So those, the, those two factors, um, the fact that post-colonial settlement um, in BC is much more recent and none of the territories in British Columbia have been legally ceded or surrendered 
um, has been this complicating factor in, in BC's politics and, and in terms of um, Indigenous resurgence and, and resistance and sovereignty. I mean, for, for a very long time, for decades now, but but particularly since, uh, or in, in a way that's been particularly difficult to ignore since uh, the mid-1990s. So in 1995, three years after OCA, there's a massive standoff, again with a BC NDP government uh, at Gustafson Lake in rural British Columbia between um, Sundancers and um, I, I think it's a you know a rancher who basically says, you know these these guys are on my property, and the RCMP and the Canadian military engage in this absolutely enormous, completely outsized and completely disproportionate and wildly violent response to the presence of of these um, sun dancers, who even at the time and even in the framing. Um, which is a pre-Delgamook decision, like seem to have at least as much acclaim as this rancher uh, to use of the land. And, and we're talking like thousands of rounds of live ammunition, tanks, explosive devices akin to like landmines are, are used. Uh, it's, this, it's this enormous operation. And then within a couple of years is the, the Delgamook decision. And all of a sudden, these things that, you know, essentially the only people who've been talking about were, um, you know, either indigenous people themselves or they're like fringe anarchist and environmentalist allies, things like the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and, you know, unceded territory and all these terms start making their way into the mainstream of BC discourse, uh, political discourse. And, you know, suddenly this, this rancher's claim is, is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about are, is, like, the, are the deeds to anything uh, meaningful in, in any way. And so, basically, the, the right wing in this province, which has always been a very, very strong, uh, because, because of the coastal areas that are so much more left, like Vancouver, Victoria, big parts of um, Vancouver Island, pockets of the Kootenays, uh, which lean very left. BC gets this kind of reputation as, as being um, a more progressive province, but the biggest chunks of the province are essentially indistinguishable from Alberta in terms of like political outlook. Like it's a very conservative place in, in, most, in most parts of the province. And the right has always been very powerful here. So um, the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the right wing in BC politics is, is uh, stronger than it's been in a decade. A very unpopular NDP government uh, falls, like just gets absolutely wiped out, has only two sitting MLAs, um, one in my riding that I live in uh, and the other in the riding next to it. Two. Uh, very uh, poor working class uh, Vancouver ridings in, uh, in East Vancouver. Otherwise, the whole the whole province was represented by what was called the Liberal Party, but was really actually a quite a hard right uh, government led by Gordon Campbell, who then basically puts Indigenous rights to a referendum 
uh, it says, should we even be negotiating with, you know, should we even be negotiating treaties? Should we be negotiating with uh, Indigenous rights? Um, this referendum happens. Basically, the uh, Indigenous position on the referendum is to call for a boycott of the referendum, that it's essentially illegal in terms of UN law to put Indigenous rights to, um, to vote. And then after this referendum, and, you know, owing to a lot of, like, really hard work by a lot of very dedicated activists on the one hand, and on the other hand, I think uh, a really strong, like, cultural strand, like, BC really loves to put Indigenous culture forward because, I mean, the art here is, it's, I mean, it's, it's valued internationally all over the world, both, like, classically and contemporary Indigenous West Coast art. Um, there's this move towards the kinder, gentler uh, British Columbia, both on the right and on the left. The basic sort of class formula in, in BC politics has never really gotten past the extraction side. We really are still a, a resource-driven province. We've never been as industrialized as Ontario or um, Quebec. Uh, and so the, um, the, not only the capitalist class here, but the labor movement here has always been very much a natural resource, uh, natural resource-driven economy. And the fact is that our side of that class conflict has only really been somewhat more uh, successful in establishing any kind of solidarity or, or understanding of, of where Indigenous sovereignty fits in in either a solidaristic way or just a basic sort of principled way in, into our analysis. And so, unfortunately, historically, NDP governments, while sort of fainting towards being better on issues of Indigenous rights, have always ended up in these positions of basically uh, being more or less indistinguishable when the shit hits the fan. So, you know, John Horgan, who I have to say, like, I've worked with, I've worked for, I really, I really like as an individual guy. Like, I mean, this is this is a government full of people who, like, not only was I rooting for, not only have I have I supported, not only have I like, I've done fundraisers for, and but I mean, some of these are people who I've like known my whole political life and like really consider dear friends. Uh, and a few months ago, they they were the first government in Canada to enact UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into provincial law and it was just this like desperately proud moment and i mean the ink didn't even dry before all of this stuff blew up and um it's just tragic on on so many different levels okay so but just to go back a little bit i want to ask you about the particular way in which indigenous sov sovereignty is sort of talked about and and legally how it's structured in bc because the treaties so in ontario for instance um historically the treaties were the means by which indigenous people were subjected to the will of the canadian state yeah 
And now, uh, very often they work, you know, in this interesting dialectical fashion. They are the means by which indigenous people are able to come forward and say, well, you, you know, this Canadian state should respect the treaties. Yeah. And, and so they're... Well, just like, yeah. Well, like the fact that one of the most important anti-colonial precedents in Western Canada is called the Royal Proclamation mm-hmm. of 1763. Like, I mean, you've put your finger right on it that, that the, the only word to describe it is dialectic. Like, and, and I mean, in BC, the, the talk around treaties is really like, it never stays in one place for long. Because in 2002, 2003, when it was like a hard right provincial government saying, hey, we're going to we're going to wrap up this treaty process. We're not getting anything out of it. You know, we're done with, you know, handouts to these these people. The left position was like, hey, we can't stop doing treaties you know, these indigenous people have rights uh, and and you can't just unilaterally shut down the treaty process. Now, 18 years later, the treaty process is almost entirely viewed as a cynical kind of termination agreement of like, how do we once and finally and once and for all make it so we can build whatever we want in this country? And, you know, you hear the way these these guys, you know, the talking heads, like, you know, you turn on CBC News World or whatever, the way the word treaty gets used is it's just like treaty to them is the is the uh, magic wand that will make angry indigenous people go away. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's 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 been a wild thing to like uh, literally in the course of like my not even my life, but like my adulthood, like to see the language on this, like, totally change. Yeah, treaties and reconciliation, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is the problem with, uh, you know, culture has sped up now to such a degree. I mean, like, you know, the the almost the cliche phrase to use this on is fake news, that, it, like, within two seconds it goes from being this, this thing that's, like, you know, softballed in... Donald Trump's direction from liberal Democrats, and then he picks it up and turns it into the bludgeon that he's going to use for the rest of his presidency. Uh, It just metabolizes it instantly. Um, Yeah, like the the Liberal Party of Canada is the party of reconciliation, which is... uh, it was only a matter of time before someone came along and said, but like when Ruben George said in reference to the, the TMX decision a couple of weeks ago, when he said reconciliation is dead and all of a sudden that like caught fire. I mean, people, people are talking about reconciliation is dead as that hashtag in response to the wet sweating thing, but it wasn't the wet sweating thing. That was Ruben George uh, a week or two before talking about the trans mountain pipeline decision. And, you know, we all know, like, you can't, you can't just, you know, utter a phrase and have it catch fire if the conditions aren't, aren't there for it. And I mean, I'm actually surprised, you know, reconciliation was such a brittle word by the end. Like, 
I'm surprised it lasted for as long as it did. I think it that it lasted so long speaks to how much people on every side of it really did kind of genuinely hold out a certain amount of hope for it. Yeah, and I and I think the Canadian public, broadly speaking, is you know sympathetic, and especially nowadays. I mean, even you know what is the recent poll that came out about the Wet'suwet'en protests and the blockades. I think it was like 60-something percent people said they were against the blockades, but, you know, something like 70 percent were in favor of the government doing more uh, for Indigenous peoples and for their rights. Yeah. I mean, I we there was a, I was at one of the solidarity rallies a couple of nights ago in in Vancouver, and there was a guy standing at the side of the um, at the march, just holding up his middle finger, and then he kept like running up along the side of the demo, like keeping pace with it, and then holding up his middle. And it was like, on the one hand, he was being obnoxious. On the other hand, I was like. In some ways, it was like, and then and then people just started gathering around him and holding up a peace sign in front of him, and it was like, at least he's I don't know, I, there was there was something about it where it's like he was being a dick, but he was he was being a dick in a pretty civil way, and then the people who were responding to him were responding in a, in a civil way, like they weren't taking that they weren't taking that bait, and I do think that we can um, because of because of how demoralizing this issue can be. I mean, when, you, when you're talking about places in, in Canada that have been under boil uh, water advisories for, for decades, I mean, for the, you know, entire lives of people who are going into their 30s, like, I mean, it's so demoralizing that I think you can, the, 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 there's an attendant feeling of just like that no one cares. And, and I, I, I think you're right that there are um well that, that it's complicated like that there are obviously like big layers of canadian society that are obviously have a big antipathy towards um expressions of indigenous sovereignty but i also think that where there's a feeling that there is actually some leadership coming from the canadian side to meet uh, th- those demands. I think there are a lot of people in non-Indigenous Canada who, like you say, and like the polls bear out, want to, um, they do want to see the right thing, the right thing done. And people who place a, a, a certain amount of hope in uh, Indigenous nations as more or less the only climate leadership that seems to be present in the country. Outside of like Quebec electoral politics, I, you know, I was at my aunt and uncle's place, you know, this is a couple of years ago. And, you know, my aunt and uncle, you know, they're teachers, they live in suburban Vancouver. And, you know, they're talking about, they're more or less like explicitly talking about how the only thing that's going to save their kids from climate change is the exercise of indigenous sovereignty to protect the coast. And it's like, this is, that's, that's what solidarity looks like. It's people identifying their material interests with those of other people who, and, and like 
seeing the the actual possibility of leadership. I mean, I really do think like if you like the the very first line of the critique of the Gotha program, uh, Marx goes after the Gotha program for saying that all la- all value comes from labor, and points out that la- uh, value comes from labor and from nature. And I think in in Canada, what that means is like that any socialist movement, any sort of movement towards equality and democracy will have to do with the people who provide the labor and the people to whom the land belongs. Uh, And so any sort of future for socialism uh, in the country involves uh, a recognition of, of, of that relationship. That's a really, actually, a great story about your relatives and their uh, take on this. Because it's this is kind of a it's a sort of historically unique situation, right? Where settler communities aren't necessarily upset that they are the the natives are getting unruly. Yeah, I mean, like that that because they know that the only possible way out of any of these pipelines, any of these. Uh, and that's where things get, um, and I mean, I, I understand as well that there is some impatience on the side of people who, so for instance, view some of this as like piggybacking of climate or pipeline protests onto indigenous sovereignty uh, stuff. And, you know, it's obviously complicated. I think there is like, when when guys like Jason Kenny say that there's majority support for the for the pipeline, not only in the community at large but in the indigenous community, like my understanding is is like that's that's true, and that these demonstrations have to do with the mechanics of the hereditary chieftainships and and the electeds. But the 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 two the two questions are are virtually at this point, virtually inextricable. Right. So this is something that is, you know, in all of the news about this, any of the coverage about this, the first or second line will be about how, well, most of the communities along the path of this pipeline, and then even most of the people within the Wet'suwet'en nation seem to think that it's okay to have this pipeline. And then, you know, there's um, the principle of free, prior, and informed consent that's often raised, but what isn't being talked about is the structures in which like these consultations or this consent is being sought. So just the first first word in you know in the free part is something to focus on, right? Like you have these communities that have been subjected to poverty for decades and isolation, and every four or five years, some energy company comes and says hey, here's a big mega project. Do you guys want it? And, you know, and if the choice is between continued poverty and isolation and, you know, something that will no longer be that, then that's not a free choice. No, yeah. But also, like, not, like, decisions neither in Indigenous nor in non-Indigenous communities or societies aren't made on a referendum or plebiscite basis like 
everyone in BC wanted uh, ride hailing apps for, you know, a million. Like we just got Uber and Lyft literally, I think, three weeks ago. And at any point in the last 10 years, if you had done a poll, a, a huge majority of people in BC would have said, um, yeah, we want, we want Uber, we want Lyft. But the provincial government said no, or the municipal government said no. There are detrimental effects, like uh, like to labor or to whatever that like are so, like either the hereditary chiefs are part of the governance structure or they're not, and the law says that they are. And for too long in this country in a classic sort of divide and rule model, people go, well, you know, it's complicated. Some, uh, some of the indigenous people want this, some of the indigenous people want that. And you can acknowledge that complexity without sending in the RCMP to shoot the ones who don't agree with you. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, for people who were around at the time of Gustafson Lake, it can be hard because it does feel like we're just having the same conversation over and over or like, or that the same things are happening in the country and no, that no one's learning from the, the, the conversation. It's very different this time. Like the numbers involved are very different. And, you know, at the time of Oka, you wouldn't have been able to count on massive demonstrations in the cities of largely non-indigenous people showing their solidarity with these more radical, smaller indigenous actions outside of the big cities. So things do change. They just don't necessarily change fast enough. Yeah, and on the uh, the RCMP raid, so the RCMP raid of uh, Unistoten camp, I think what is really interesting about those kinds of moments is even for myself, you know, like I'm supposed to know that Markets aren't natural, right? Yeah, they that they're they're created, but but you know I don't know. It's like I live this sort of urban lifestyle where I live in a liberal market utopia. Like I can get up in the morning and decide, hey, what am I going to order on Amazon today? Yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna come to my door tomorrow, and it's beautiful, and I don't have to I don't have to know about <laughs> everything that goes into that. And then, you know, this, this RCMP raid happens and it's like, oh, right. Markets are constructed and, and capitalist property relations are backed up by force. And the fact that this, this pipeline project is, it, it's riding on the promise by the BC provincial government that, you know, they're going to get massive tax exemptions, right? Another means by which marks, markets are created. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that, like, inspired by the, like, abolish ICE slogan in American politics, like, I genuinely think that a call for the RCMP as a as as an institution to be dissolved shouldn't be outside of the horizons of um, the, the demands of the, the Canadian left. I mean, it is a it is a rotten institution from from the boots up. This is the kind of thing it was formed to do. Every few years, there's one of these 
unimaginable scandals that we just can't wrap our head around. How do they kill a Polish guy in the airport like that? How do they pepper spray students like that? How do they let their their own female officers uh, endure these like regimes of sexual harassment and, and bullying like that? It's a completely, uh, I mean, to say it's a dysfunctional organization would suggest that this is not what it was set up to do. But it's uh, I, the idea that uh, the RCMP should be drawn down as a as a national institution, I think, is something that should at least be um, an opinion that you hear uh, in the conversation. And I say that as somebody who is, and this is my understanding, I was conceived after an RCMP um, a par- uh, Christmas party because uh, both of my parents were... Um, they were dispatch workers. They were emergency dispatchers. They met at work. And I, my understanding of how the story goes is there was an RCMP party. And uh, uh, after that, I was, uh, I was conceived. Oh. And then born on the following, uh, born on the following Canada Day. Right. Um, so it's like it's just a thoroughly rotten, maybe I should be dissolved as an institution. Me and RCMP should both be drawn down. I'm willing to, uh, I'm willing to, uh, you know, introduce that symmetry to the demand. I, I'm just trying to think. I don't think that the the RCMP connection is in your uh, in your book when you talk about your birth. No, I'm a little, I'm a little um, foggy on it, but I, I I think that's that's what it is. Uh, but I could be mixing it up with the story of the one time my mom smoked pot was uh, um, was at an RCMP party. So it could, it's, it's, I could be mixing up two anecdotes. But actually, I, I think the part in your, your book about your birth is, is relevant here. Do you mind if I read it? No. Oh. Okay, so this is from Charlie's book, uh, The Horrors, which is a collection of autobiographical essays. And that's The Horrors, H-O-R-R-O-R-S. It's one of those uh, titles like... Um, like on uh, 30 Rock, the rural juror that you just can't really say out loud. I didn't realize that until it was published. Oh, what, what do people can confuse it with? Well, you know, when you say the horrors, it, it can sound as though. Oh, yeah, I see. I see. A deeply misogynistic <laughs> uh, book of essays. Right. I didn't realize that as I said it, but then when I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here on in the chapter for capitalism. It's the third chapter you have. You say, I was born at the same time as the deregulated free market. And in both my life and the life of unfettered capitalism, it's only now, after all these years, that we can look back and try to piece together how everything went so wrong. I was born on July 1st, 1980. And for my darling mother, this augured well, not only personally, but politically. My mom saw a great deal of auspiciousness in the date of my birth, and in its attendant symbolism. It was Canada Day, just six weeks after Quebec had voted to stay in the country. And here I was, being born on the national holiday, to an English-speaking mother and a Quebecois father. It seemed that I was Canada. Although the analogy isn't perfect, because my folks didn't steal the delivery room from an indigenous family that was already using it. (laughs) I... uh... Um, 
or or that they yeah, or like, that they didn't contract the RCMP to to steal the <laughs> the delivery room yes. on your behalf. Yeah, like I mean to tell you like how much things have changed in this country. It used to be my whole childhood. That story was just hey, my his dad was French, his mom was English, he was born on Canada Day, and that's everybody who's in the country. Like. That covers all the bases. Right. Uh, and, you know, you tell that story and people go, isn't that, isn't that funny? And uh, and now you tell that story and people are like, oh, so you're born in July. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, she did. She thought uh, she was convinced I would be, um, she was convinced I would be prime minister. But she also, she also wrote in her baby journal, like, when I was two weeks old, she called, she said I was a comedian. And, uh, yeah. So that part turned out. So she was, she was closer with one. Well, I still have time to become prime minister, but that's true. Uh, I I, somehow I don't feel my running on my all birthday platform is really gonna sell me. No. And it is, it is interesting, like reading this sort of thing and about Canadian nationhood as this kind of Anglophone plus Francophone thing. It's there's a there's a nice you know as you were saying like it, there it used to be a time when that was what it was yeah and it's a like, yeah. like it's a, there's a nice sort of nostalgic feeling to to that when I read that this is like oh well that's not how yeah. how I've grown up <laughs> yeah no it's a um it's a, I'm I'm doing a joke right now in my act that uh, like that's about how, how big this country is. And, and it's so big that we don't even know each other's prejudices. And, you know, how um, Maxime Bernier started a political party for Canadian racists. And no one told him that racists in Canada also hate French people. <laughs> Somehow, like, he just went and just, and, you know, that how much... I would love to have been there like the first day in Lethbridge where he go, hello, uh, my name is Maxim. Uh, I help you uh, get rid of the Muslim. Uh, and they just go, why don't you fucking speak English, asshole? <laughs> uh, like it's, uh, and it really did make, you know, when you think about it, it actually is the biggest safeguard against a sort of Trump-like figure in, uh, like, rising in Canada is that there are two two big groups of white-skinned people who don't like each other. Yeah. It's like this, it's this built-in safeguard that's actually not minorly important. Like, it, it's always a thorn in the side of these, like, big populist um and just the, the misunderstanding of quebec and and the, the fact that like the canadian left really just doesn't you know is not willing to think of quebec as anything but just like white people who speak a different language which is a, a completely you know just at odds with the history of the country and and makes no sense of the the politics of the of the country that that really you know you have to be willing to understand Quebec politics as like this weird amalgam of like American redneck and 
Latin American politics at the same time that is that is uncanny and there's nothing like it really in the in the western world and and so it's this totally evasive thing where you're just like where it's like hey what's going on with quebec uh oh man they uh they hate hijabs oh how come canada wasn't in the iraq war oh because quebec didn't want to go to war with iraq and also they're the only place where pro-palestinian politics is part of the mainstream political opinion like it's this it's this completely uncanny remainder in in canadian politics that just doesn't it doesn't fit into like tweetable politics so it just gets it just gets kind of ignored yeah and i think it's you know i mean my a lot of my left-wing friends think that i may be too soft on canadian multiculturalism but i yeah i often think you know how uh, how lucky that my parents came here as opposed to i don't know going to some european country to look for a better life because the the need to incorporate quebec into the federation meant that but the, this this multicultural legacy has had very real impacts and it it means that someone like me can grow up in a country like this and not really notice that I'm an outsider. These are the f forbidden things to say on the Canadian left that are really, it's a big problem that, that we're not allowed to. Um, I, one of my like favorite all-time memories in this vein is like on my wedding night, my mother-in-law, who uh, moved from Hong Kong to the United States when she was like 20, and then uh, and then after university moved to Toronto. So she moved from Hong Kong to Chicago, and then Chicago to Toronto. Most of her family's still in the states now. But on my wedding night, while my friend, who's Sikh, was driving me and my wife to the hotel where we were staying and he was dropping off my mother-in-law where she was staying. My mother-in-law was very drunk and she demanded that I acknowledge that I would not be married that night if it wasn't for Pierre Trudeau and that I had to acknowledge that I owed Pierre Trudeau uh, a debt of gratitude for official multiculturalism because she would not have come to Canada if it were, and it's like, you know, the fact is when you look at the history of this country, um, and, and one of the things that, that I think we have a hard time admitting is like, it has been a pretty good deal for almost everybody who's arrived after the country started. Even if they went through really bad stuff, the country has been pretty good about figuring out a way to, and that the people who have been most unable to be sort of metabolized by Canada were the ones who preceded it mm -hmm. being here. So obviously indigenous people, Quebec or, or French Canada uh, and the Métis and you know, Afro Nova Scotians and the, the uh, uh, loyalists who, who arrived in the country uh, after the American Revolution. But like, like those are the communities that the country has just found, you know, intractable. Uh, and, and then otherwise, like 
if you talk to most, and I mean, this is this is one of the problems with like you know a left that often involves you know people who grew up in pretty affluent places or you know people who got their leftism from going to universities or whatever, and maybe didn't maybe didn't grow up around a lot of people whose parents came here as immigrants or who's uh, you know is they have a very abstract understanding of what what this country is as meant. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm disinclined to defend Canada for all the you know political reasons that I that I am, but but like you say, I mean, if it's if it's this, or it's you know going to a country like that wants to have a referendum because somebody wants to like um, you know build a mosque uh, in like. Belgium or something like it's uh, I think that was Switzerland Switzerland okay yeah yeah I mean it's uh, like it's not yeah it's, I mean it's nuts it's it's totally it's totally crazy you know I have a friend who wears a headscarf and was at a some conference in I forget if it was Denmark or something like that and she was like they look at me like they're at the aquarium Hmm. Like it was it like not even to the level of like, ah, I can't stand the music they play in the neighborhood, like just to the level of like the little girl in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was like, did God paint you like just full, like full otherworldly confusion of like what is going, what is going on? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I like that my daughter doesn't have to, uh, um, although when, St when Stephen Harper said, you know, old stock Canadians, people see my daughter who's visibly, I mean, she's visibly Chinese. She also goes back in this country as it happens to the mid 1600s. So like she's as literally as old stock as they come in terms of what Stephen Harper meant and is also 100% not who he was talking about. So, but, you know, like you say, that the attempt even with old stock was so pathetic and it just like went nowhere. Mm -hmm. People were like old stock. What the fuck is this guy talking about? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's something that I, I know that, uh, on the left, we are only supposed to complain. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And so it's hard to, to be the person who says, well, hold on. These are things, these are legacies that we have to build on. As opposed to yeah. try to tear down, um, and that that yeah, that 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 history has to be acknowledged. But um, but actually, I wanted to get back to the the natural gas for a second, as a as sure. a segue to if we can, uh, <laughs> well, just a reference to American politics. But I wanted to ask about um, so this this wet sweatin situation is over a. A uh, liquefied natural gas project, yeah, gas that's going to be fracked in uh, northeastern BC and transported to Kitimat from where it's supposed to go to markets in Asia. As it always says, markets in Asia. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a big place, Asia. I wonder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they got a few people. Yeah, but uh, I was watching the Nevada debate. Actually, I, I'm lying. I didn't watch the Nevada debate. What I did is I went on YouTube and found a clip with all of Bernie Sanders' 
his statements during the debate. Oh, yeah. We, my wife and I watched the same thing. We tried to, after our daughter went to bed, we tried to find the Nevada debate and no one had put it online. So we just had to watch the, um, we watched that and the uh, Buttigieg, Klobuchar. Um, and I was so torn because I just feel like on the one hand, Klobuchar not knowing who the president of Mexico is, is, is like a Sarah Palin level, like just absolutely disqualifying ignorance. On the other hand, her like visible desire to punch Pete Buttigieg may be the most relatable thing about her. Like it's, uh, it was so hard to pick a side in that, um, in that standoff. But yeah, so I saw, um, oh, so I think I know the, the, the question you're gonna, about the, the union guy saying, uh, if it's Sanders. Yeah. Either stay home or vote for the other guy. Yeah. So the the moderator, yeah, he put this very tough question to Sanders. Yeah. About how some union president who you know represents workers in the, the fracking industry told his his workers that yeah, if if Sanders wins, they shouldn't vote for him. And you know because Sanders has taken the stand that you know he would ban fracking in the U.S. And, you know, and the moderator is like, oh, do you still, would you, are you still standing f to ban uh, fracking? And, and, you know, Bernie was firm and he said, yeah, yeah I, I, I still think we should ban it. And I thought, how wonderful. I mean, and he gave a full answer, of course, uh, yeah, that, yeah. that would hopefully convince workers in that industry. But I, I also was just sort of like sad that the Canadian left, uh, you know, and the Canadian electoral left is is nowhere near as brave uh, or committed to to that kind of thing, to just yeah. being able to say, hey, like this, you know, we just got to leave these things in the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, like when Linda McQuaig said it, she was absolutely pilloried. And it was just, I mean, what she was saying was just like basic, basic, not only like economic common sense, but just like, physical, geological, you know, it's really tough. And I think we don't do ourselves any favors when we pretend like there are super easy answers to this. You know, I think the division between the English-speaking labor movement in this country and the French-speaking labor movement in this country is you know it's it's a um, it's a major tragedy on a, on a number of levels, but one of the levels on which it's proving to be um, a tragedy specifically right now is you know we had we've already been through this with Quebec and asbestos. Quebec was the world's largest producer of asbestos, and you had a thing that went from being in every industrial product every and like every school that went up had asbestos in the walls every house that was built had asbestos in the floors i mean it was in everything and it all came from quebec and the asbestos strike in 1949 like defined quebec for the rest of the 20th century i mean it, it made pierre elliott trudeau in terms of like it was one of the formative experiences um, politically of, of his life. And 
it wasn't like like people are still in Quebec trying to sell asbestos and trying to send it to the third world. There are people who, but for the most part, this massive, massive industry has been drawn down. And it's it's not because the workers did anything wrong. It's not because the workers were doing work that wasn't socially necessary when it was happening. Uh, it wasn't because they weren't risking life and limb to do some of the most dangerous and undervalued work in the society at the time, but it was because we just couldn't continue to to put this poison out into the world. And the people who work the oil patch, I mean, all you can really say is, look, the oil industry has laid off more oil workers than David Suzuki and Naomi Klein and Greta Thunberg rolled up into one ever have or ever will. And they laid you off because the price of oil went down. Like we're saying we have to transition off these jobs because it's going to destroy the planet. And I think the fact is like, you can make that case as strongly as possible. You can create the incentives to retrain people and provide early retirements for people who are in those industries. People are still going to fight for the work that they do. And look, I am, <clears throat> I'm a comedian. My job has an enormous carbon footprint. I take 10, 12, 13 flights every year like i'll fly into a small town do a show there and fly out the next day what i do is no more a sustainable thing than a guy who works the rigs but i square the circle the same way he or she does by saying look i'm one person the society that i'm in the is bigger than me I've got a family to feed and, you know, I get one go around. So I think it's like we, we just have to resist all of the worst pitfalls, which is, I mean, personalizing responsibilities that aren't personal, um, blaming workers for their jobs, which has always been a, a middle class deviation uh, and there should just be no place for it on the left. And I mean... Just the only way to, you know, make people feel less threatened by the attempt to draw down the industry that employs them is to make sure that they've got as many real high quality options on the table as you can provide them with. And um, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone, but I mean, I think Ontario and British Columbia and their, their respective um, New Democratic parties are particularly acute instances of this where the historical alliance of forces that have allowed those parties to cobble together uh, alliances that occasionally win elections really don't feel sustainable anymore. That you have these like, exurban and rural and suburban you know hard hat voters and then you're like urban bike riding 
you know, educated, uh, left-leaning voters who uh, are voting increasingly ecologically. Uh, there is a, like, there's a reckoning that keeps getting, well, that just keeps being thrown in the face of, like, you know, the, the, the BCNDP, you know, just barely won the last election, uh, although not by winning an outright plurality of seats. Uh, the BCNDP is in a supply and confidence agreement with the Green Party. We lost the last election that we were supposed to win. And, you know, a big part of it, uh, people say, was because of Adrian Dix, the, uh, the leader uh, in that election, coming out against the pipeline. And that made a lot of people like me who live in Vancouver or in Victoria or, you know, Nelson, uh, very happy, and it made a bunch of people who work with what you can yank out of what's outside uh, nervous. You know, I did a I did a gig for teachers in the East Kootenays uh, last year. You know, flew out to Cranbrook, and I mean, you know, I got picked up at the airport by a woman from the teachers union. I mean, in, in this town, in that role, this is going to be like the most left-wing person you're going to meet in in the city. And she was talking to me about coal and how much coal meant in that community and what it would mean if they stopped mining coal there. And you just, you hear conversations that never, never happen in the city. And, uh, I think a lot of times there's a good sort of like sloganeering component of the left that, that tends to paper over these as though they were not sort of material conflicts. I think there there is a real contradiction or there are there are sets of real contradictions between on the one hand uh, indigenous sovereignty over the land on the other hand resource extraction labor and on the other hand you know debt burdened underemployed highly educated downwardly mobile precariat uh young people in the cities and the labor movement and it's like attendant parliamentary wing should be a clearinghouse for sorting through some of those contradictions and and learning what other people's kind of concerns are on a place that's not Twitter, on a place that's not Instagram, but but in a place that that actually means meeting people. And uh, you know, one of the really kind of compelling experiences for me of this past year was, yeah, I was up on Haida Gwaii to do some shows, and the shows had to be moved around because there was sort of an emergency potlatch to potlatch in the new chief, uh, hereditary chief, because one of the existing hereditary chiefs was having his chief name removed and held from him because of some of the work he was doing with Enbridge and using his hereditary chief name in that work. And uh, uh, it was a very deeply controversial thing. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of pain in that and at the potlatch for the first hour and a half the the ousted chief gets to make, make his case 
And he and his family stood and like just did not spare anyone their opinions of like what was going on. But everyone was physically in that room and it was hard to sit through. But these are people who like live on an island with, uh, or a series of islands with, I think it's, you know, 10,000 people or something like that. They're going to see each other for generations. So those, those types of very difficult things have to be, have to be confronted in a way that is different than, you know, me telling you to fuck off and then blocking you on Twitter, uh, which is just not how society happens. Well, so I wanted to just if let's see if we have time, but the parliamentary question, let's put that to a side. If we have time for it, I'd like to get to it. But this other side of the, the way these contradictions play out in, within indigenous communities as well, right? of indigenous sovereignty and the question of development of resources and the need for jobs, the need for poverty alleviation. As I was listening to a CBC podcast and they were talking with a uh, one of the former chiefs from the Fort Mackay First Nation in Northern Alberta, a guy named Jim Boucher. And, you know, he was making the case that it was very worthwhile for indigenous communities to to work with industry to develop resources and to have, you know, and so I I know that some of my indigenous friends will say, well, this is just, you know, this is what the Canadian media does. They they just bring on these, right. You know, these collaborators to, to come and, and, and talk. But I mean, you know, you, one of the things you learn through the, the, the discussion is that in the 1980s, this was a community that didn't have running water. And today, it seems like probably most of the people in this community have a standard of living that's higher than than most people in Toronto. Mm. And once again, like if these are the two choices you have, yeah, you know, like it's not a choice. Yeah, no, and uh, and yeah, and the fact is, I mean, we can't. And I think you know, people have made this case about you know Cuba. They've made this case about various, but you know leftists who are in you know safe comfortable spaces can't ask those on the fringes uh you know geographically or economically um to be the experimental vanguard of socialism for the rest of us and i think we live in a time where like most people who consider themselves socialists don't even necessarily have a completely you know, well thought out idea of what exactly that will look like or what that means. You know, will it be market socialism? Will it be a, uh, a state planning, but using the new computer powers that we have at hand? Will it be, uh, you know, just a return to year zero and anybody with glasses uh, gets rounded up and sent to the countryside? Like, there's uh, there's not necessarily an agreement on what what that looks like, um, but we all know that it will involve some version of you know many of the um, technologies that were developed under capitalism, or at least that's what any of us who come from a, a Marxist pedigree uh, that's what the project is is based on, and uh, you know being on Haida Gwaii which was the site of these huge fights around logging. And where now, you know, the, the major 
logging interest is a HIDA-owned, HIDA-operated logging company. And that seems to be something like that as a sort of casual observer who's just a kind of like enthusiastic, you know, HIDA-file from Vancouver who likes to be up there and and casually follows the politics of what goes on there, uh, like seems to be doing great things for for the nation. And we've got a friend down here uh, who's an elected council member for the Squamish nation. And, you know, they're looking at getting into the development game. But when they're talking about developing housing in Vancouver, they're talking about developing housing that will be affordable and accessible for their nation members and that will continue to pay out to to that nation because why should the squamish people be the only people in vancouver to not make anything from a real estate market that exists only from the illegal expropriation of them the musqueam and the slowitude but but our but our our friend uh, who's on the band council, you know, it would never for him be a matter of like, oh, let's just get into you know the rapacious practices of the capitalism that destroyed or you know brought brought my nation to the brink of destruction. It's how do we you know incorporate the 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 best analysis from what we know of left urbanism and and you know how do we how do we design communities uh, that that will benefit benefit our nation both financially uh, and in terms of uh, in terms of housing it and also as a comedian I just had to love that as soon as he talked about building hundreds of rental units in one of the most affluent neighborhoods in the country, the residents of that neighborhood said um, they hadn't been uh, consulted. (laughs) I mean, you just have to, if you don't love that irony, I, I have to question whether you have a pulse. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. We'll be back again with a new episode next Monday. So make sure to tune in then as well. If you want to get in touch with us, you can write an email to contact at oatspodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.